Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Good morning. So today's topic is uh, fraught with some emotion. It's fraught with hopes and dreams. It's fraught with tension. It's fraught with questions as to whether we can really trust the Bible or not. Today we're going to talk about what the Bible talks about and the role of women, women's rights in general. And uh, as we do that today, we're going to talk about two primary positions that have been really the two positions throughout all of history, whether it's in the Judeo-Christian faith or even in secular or other religious faiths. And it's the tradition one is called, we're going to use a big word, called complementarianism. And I'm going to explain what that means in a minute. And the other one, the other view is called egalitarianism. And uh, over the course of the Judeo-Christian history, the complementarian view has been the primary view. In fact, it's not just Judeo-Christian. It's actually the primary view of most cultures throughout history have been the complementarian view. And I'll just be honest. For most of my life, I grew up believing, or a good portion of my life, I grew up believing and living in that complementarian worldview. It was in my mid-twenties that I began to struggle with it and question it in, uh, in seminary and afterwards. And even after I officially changed positions, spoiler, uh, to the egalitarian position, I struggled with the theology surrounding this. And I think we all tend to struggle with it, uh, especially if you're a complementarian in your view. You've struggled with this from the perspective of a sense of fear. Uh, when I first started to struggle with it, I felt like I had the emotional baggage that I felt like I was having to sacrifice some of the very core of my belief to change positions for a couple reasons. Uh, back then, and it's less so now, the predominant people who espoused an egalitarian view were people who didn't believe in the authority and inspiration of Scripture. And so to change views felt like I was sacrificing one of the foundational beliefs that I have, which is the Bible is authoritative to speak and reliable to speak into every area of our life. And that's really hard and an emotionally hard thing to deal with. The other, and it's only really been in the last 30 years that we've had a large number of theologians and pastors who believe in the inspiration of the Scripture who have made a biblically faithful case for that role. One of the other reasons I think a lot of us struggle with it is if, we're, if, we, if you have an egalitarian worldview, which let's just explain that basically means equal rights for women, then uh, you probably have a very difficult time trusting some of the difficult passages in the Bible because of what they say. We're going to look at those ch- texts today, and we're going to deal with each one of them individually and wrestle with them and talk about them. So um, there's actually, in addition to just the core substance of the debate today, there are three underlining purposes for me. One is to, to remove that fear, whether you're an egalitarian that the Bible can't be trusted as authoritative, or whether you're a complementarian and believe that to be an egalitarian you have to give up the, your view of the authority of the Scripture. I want to remove that fear from us today. We're going to be talking about this issue, and frankly, a lot of, it's, a lot of it in theology can be arguably gray. And uh, it's not, uh, whichever view you hold is not, that has nothing to do with salvation. So it's not critical from that standpoint. But I do personally believe that the egalitarian position is uh, correct biblically, and I believe it's really important for us to hold from a standpoint of 
whether we're going to be as effective as we possibly could be in reaching people for the gospel today in our culture. The other reason why we're going to deal with it today is I think this gives us an amazing, and maybe this is the most important reason to me, I think this gives us an amazing opportunity to see how God wants the power of the gospel to be the priority in our lives and our relationships and how powerful that gospel really is. And third, the reason I have in doing this message today is because it really does, I think, a really good job of illustrating how we can be biblically faithful and make an argument that something is cultural, not an absolute command for all time. So those are the main areas uh, we're going to deal with today. Now, let's start by defining the two positions uh, from a theological standpoint. And we're going to start by looking at what they both have in common first. Both a complementarian and an egalitarian believe that in creation, God created men and women different, duh, right? That he created a beautiful difference in the way we're made up, not just physically, but in every way we're made up, and that together, men and women together, represent a more full picture of the image of God. They all agree pretty much on that statement. Now, where they're different, complementarians believe that God's designed creation differences also dictate roles that men and women fulfill. And that for women, in the case of our discussion today, to operate outside of those roles brings unnatural stress, difficulty, disharmony, and pain to self, to relationships, to the society, right? On the other hand, the egalitarians would say, yes, God created those differences, but our roles in life, the the positions we can fulfill, the leadership roles we can fulfill, are dictated only on giftedness. And therefore, the giftedness of a man or the giftedness of a woman is what is always relied upon to determine whether somebody can fulfill a role. So let's look at this further. And this is just kind of a basic biblical interpretation approach and lesson. Whenever possible, when we're dealing with a difficult question, we want to start with what the Bible says about creation before the fall, when it was perfect, and what the Bible talks about in terms of when redemption is completed and perfect. So when we look at this look at this issue from that perspective in creation, we see that man was created first and then woman. And the complementarians would argue that this order of creation is significant, that it automatically leads to an authority and leadership issue for men being created first. And they would further go and look at passages like Genesis 2.18, where the woman's relationship to the man is described as one using a word that we translate helper, indicating that creation itself sets up a social order in which women have a for lack of a better way of saying, a secondary or support role to men, right? There's a problem with that from the egalitarian's perspective of, of interpreting the Bible. Genesis 49, 20, uh, 25, that exact same word for helper is used to describe God's relationship to us. So it seems rather absurd, I think, to all of us that we could say God is our helper and that he's secondary under our authority. That, that seems absurd, Right? So the interpretation of helper in, in an egalitarian's worldview would be that what it's saying about the woman to the man is that the woman makes the man more complete, 
come alongside, making them better, making them more whole. Not a role difference or position difference. It's just more of a wholeness. Genesis 1.27, uh, in one sense, reinforces this. It says that God made humankind, plural, men and women, in his image. And there's no distinction of authority in that statement. There's no distinction of social order. In fact, there's more of actually a communication in there of sameness, of equality. Complementarians would look further at creation and say that Genesis 3.16, talking about the woman, says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So complementarians would say that that dictates a created social order. The problem with that is that in Genesis 3.16, we're not talking about creation before the fall. We're actually talking about the curse of sin and death and the effect that it's having in context on the environment, on humanity, genetically, and on social order and social relationships. So the reality that maybe there are some women out there who always need a man or there's an overt extra desire that way or maybe because men like to rule and like to be right is actually a corruption of the original sacred order and a part of the curse, not the original design of creation. So for... uh, Egalitarians, that's, that's, that's the creation. And complementarians, that's the creation. But what does the Bible say about completed redemption? There's many passages on this, but the one that's easiest to look at, that's often most talked about, is in Galatians 3. And it says this, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And then it goes on to say, We're all co-heirs of the promise of Christ. Now, complementarians look at this and they say, well, that is really only talking about salvation because of all of Paul's arguments about the fact that, uh, you know, the slaves should remain faithful to their masters as well as other stuff. And they would say it only applies to salvation. But egalitarians look at that and say, I have a really hard time with that because it's not really just talking about slavery. It's not just talking about men's and women's roles. It's also talking about Jew and and Greek. There's an explicit evidence in this passage that we're talking about social order, not just salvation when we go to heaven, not just the fact that we can all be saved, but God's intent to redeem our social order is explicit in the text. So egalitarians begin with what things should look like in Scripture as it reflects God's intended best, whether it's creation before the fall or the pictures that it gives us of when we are completely redeemed. Now let's look at the really difficult passages that I think uh, for those who are egalitarian and women, you'll look at these and you'll go, ouch. And for those who are complementarian, this is the diehard view of your worldview and theology. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to read through several of these really fast just to give you the the overall view. I commend you because you maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Verse 11. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. 1 Timothy 2. 
Likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Then Ephesians 5, another difficult passage. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then we move on to the passages that describe the quality of elders and leaders in the church in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And the male, the language there is exclusively male-focused language. Now, these are strong words. And if you're for equal rights for women or you're an egalitarian position or you're a woman, some of these verses hurt a little bit or, or, or stir up some emotion, don't they? And for some I've run into, they, they make us even doubt the authority of Scripture because how, how can this be and still be accurate? Let's deal with each one of these uh, individually. But first, I want to set some guidelines. If something is going to be a cultural argument that is biblically faithful to the inspiration and authority of Scripture, that still trusts the reliability of Scripture, it has to meet one of two criteria. The first criteria is the Bible itself has to indicate the commandment is cultural for usually the purposes of prioritizing reaching people with the gospel, bringing people to faith in Jesus. In other words, the text has to say the goal of this particular command in some way is so that people will more easily respond to the gospel and not be put off by having to be confronted with all of their sin and change their entire way of life at the very beginning. Now, some people look at that statement that I just made and they say, well, and they actually think, well, the gospel requires us to completely reprioritize every part of our life. The gospel requires us to repent of every sin we have and follow Jesus. How can you separate the gospel from full repentance? And my question to you would be this. When you came to Christ, did God confront every single sin in your life or sin pattern all at once? When Jesus asked the disciples to follow him, did he first confront every single sin pattern they had in their life before they became followers of him? And the obvious answer, I think, is no, right? He didn't confront everything all at once. Jesus simply prioritized the gospel, inviting the disciples into relationship with him, into a forgiving, kind, ongoing relationship with him where the power of that relationship, the power of relationship with God would change their lives as they walked along the path of life together. You see, Jesus' big question to us at the point of conversion, let's call it, when we decide, whenever, whatever point that is, that we decide we're his followers, his big question to us is, are you willing to admit that you 
need my help and that you are sinful and unable to accomplish things on your own, are you willing to turn to me and make me your leader and walk with me and seek to the best of your ability to constantly do and obey what I ask you and then we'll work out the stuff along the way and we'll bring freedom for increasing freedom along the way. And second... It can be a cultural argument if there is evidence of the Holy Spirit's blessing someone doing the opposite of what was commanded. It's kind of the Holy Spirit presence good fruit test. It's, for example, in this discussion today, are there female leaders in the Bible who are blessed by God and others who are doing the opposite of what some of these statements seem to tell us? And especially are there some who were blessed by people who actually were the ones who penned these statements and these commandments, like the Apostle Paul. So I believe that we see that culture, these cultural arguments explicit in each one of these passages, and let me explain how. 1 Corinthians 11, we're just going to go through each one of the passages. 1 Corinthians 11 is actually in the context of three chapters that are all about cultural argument. We see that start in chapter 9 where Paul actually says, I become, though I am free, in other words, though I am free to exercise all sorts of created rights that I have, I make myself a slave of all so that I will win some to Christ. He's making a cultural argument. Uh, Chapter 10 is all a cultural argument about refraining from exercising our rights even though our right is truth and good and redemption. If it offends and causes a weaker brother or a weaker person who is a seeker to fall by the wayside, we should refrain from doing these things. And chapter 11 continues that theme. It It continues it actually starting off in a very very interesting way. Verse 1 says, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. Now, now, Paul doesn't actually develop that hugely. He does. We'll show that in just a second. Here, he develops what imitating Christ means more so in Colossians. He talks about in Colossians that imitating Christ is to be like Christ who when he left heaven, he gave up his rights as God to exercise all of his rights of right and wrong and justice and judgment and truth, he gave up those rights and came to pursue us in relationship, to offer forgiveness and to invite us into a forgiven, ongoing relationship with him. He's talking about refraining from our God-given rights to adapt to a culture and then we actually look on, and actually verse uh, chapter 11 makes it even more specific than that. It talks, uh, begins identifying what imitating of Christ is in chapter 11 by talking about how we respect the traditions around us. It uses the word traditions. And then the rest of the chapter is all about developing the theme of this core sense of unity and not being unnecessarily contentious in our culture so that we can fully understand the grace and the beauty and the communion element of, of, of chapter 11. It talks about communion. The grace and the beauty of Christ and the gospel in our lives. To me, it's fairly clear that Paul in this Corinthians passage is basically saying, conduct yourself in a culturally non-disruptive manner so that people, more people, will be one to Jesus. Now, 1 Timothy is a little more difficult. 
but I still think there's a very explicit cultural argument being there. For one, it starts off by saying that this whole argument is about being respectable. And that word respectable in and of itself is it, it automatically indicates we're talking about others' norms. We're talking about respecting the cultural norms around us. That's what the word respect itself means. And it, and it combines not only this discussion of the roles of, of men and women, but it also combines that with dress. Again, kind of giving you the feel that this is being talked about in terms of cultural appropriateness. Paul in that text uses one of the more difficult arguments for egalitarians and one of the favorite arguments of complementarians. He uses the order of creation argument, which is the man is created first and the woman second, and there's, and there's reason for that. But Paul also uses that same argument in 1 Corinthians 11, where we just were, and he actually explains it a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 11. So we're going to go back there because Paul, in a sense, as you read this, there's this awkward break and, and you see Paul kind of backtracking uh, so that we don't go too far in our interpretation of this in a non-biblical way. And he clarifies saying, nevertheless, and nevertheless is one of those words that's in spite of what I just said, he's basically saying, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so man is now also born from woman and all things are from God. Basically saying, well, let's not take that order of creation argument too far. Paul seems to be asserting this order of creation argument initially and then he backs away. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why would he back away? Why would he say something and then back away and mitigate it, if not contradict himself in what he says. And for me, it seems like the only logical conclusion is that Paul is trying to make a explicit the difference between a cultural tradition and what Christ is restoring through redeeming us back to the original created design, which is equality. Ephesians 5 is another difficult verse where it specifically says to us, Christ is the head of the man and the man is the head of the woman and the woman must submit in everything to the man. But there's a problem in applying that particular passage to this discussion that we're talking about today. And the problem is simply this. Let's go back and give you a little bit of insight into the way the, the Greek manuscripts for the New Testament were originally written. There were no paragraph markings in the original Greek manuscripts. The paragraphs markings you see in your English Bible are the translator's attempt to translate and make it right and make it flow like we would in proper English grammar. And I think in this instance, the translators got the paragraph break wrong. Verse 22 through 32 is uh, 33 is, is the passage that tends to cause difficulty for us in this discussion. But verse 21 is actually, I believe, the thesis statement for this whole section. And verse 21 says that we're not talking here about men's and women's roles. We're not talking about a woman submitting to a man. What we're talking about is mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's mutual submission, not one submitting to the other that's being talked about. And then we also see down in 30, uh, verse 32, this, again, Paul uh, makes this awkward break. He's in this flow of an argument. And Paul's one of these really fluent guys in his argument. But every now and then you see him make this awkward break and you go, what's up with that? It just doesn't seem to fit. And he says this awkward break. He says, this mystery is great. But, uh, referring to what I just said, he's basically saying, I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
Now, the complementarians look at this awkward break and and this mystery, and they point back to verse 31. And verse 31 is a verse that talks about men and women when they're married, leaving and cleaving in this mystery of becoming one. And they say that's the mystery. But but I don't really think that's what he's referring to because there's a much greater mystery in this whole thing. The thesis statement, verse 21 is actually of this discussion of mutual submission to one another is actually in the context of the beauty of the Trinity and how the Trinity submits to one another mutually. And so when we look at this verse and see this awkward break, uh, what Paul's actually doing is he's using this current day illustration. He's living in a thoroughly complementarian society where women were clearly second class. And he's using this illustration of the best ideal of what marriage could look like in that culture and saying, this is a good picture for you to think about what your relationship with Christ is, with the relationship between you and Christ, the church and Christ. And he's not necessarily referring to us. In fact, he goes on and says, and and continuing this awkward break, he goes on and says, nevertheless, meaning again, oh, in spite of my lofty ramblings about what Jesus was and all this kind of stuff in the church, here's what you can actually take away for your marriage. And he says, nevertheless, the husband must love his wife even as himself, and the wife must also see to it that she respects her husband. This is mutual submission in marriage. The previous verses that give us so much difficulty and sometimes in discussing these roles are actually mutual submission between Christ and the church and Paul attempting to illustrate that in a culturally relevant way to that day. Now, the final argument complementarians make, it's not the final argument of the message, so don't, don't hold me to the final argument here. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. In those passages, it talks about the qualifications to be a spiritual leader in the church, an elder, a deacon, leadership. And it uses exclusively he and husband, exclusively male language. So the complementarians argue it must be a man to be an elder or to be a pastor, an overseer in a church. Now, in seminary, the first thing they taught us uh, about biblical interpretation was you don't make an argument from silence. Now, for those of you who are complementarian, you'll have the same reaction I used to have when I heard that. The reaction is, it says it right here in the text. It says he and husband. It doesn't say woman. It doesn't say wife. It says he and husband. It's explicit. It's not an argument from silence. And I'm saying, no, it is an argument from silence. It is an argument from silence. To expect that a thoroughly complementarian culture whose correct grammar of the day did not include any kind of gender-inclusive format of writing like he slash she that we have today would write any different is wrong. In fact, we talk in biblical interpretation all the time how we need to understand things through the eyes of the culture in which it was written, and yet we'd like to throw out the fact that that day in that culture, in that Greek language, they didn't have any form of inclusive writing like he or she. I mean, how many of you are old enough that you can remember uh, growing up and being taught that you never used... I grew up and when I was taught to write, he, she wasn't even around. Sorry, I'm really ancient and old. We, we weren't doing gender-inclusive writing back then, Right? We were taught that it was proper to always use he if it was, if it was not specific to which gender. 
So are we going to say that all the documents written through the 50s, 60s, 70s that say he are only allowing women and excluding or allowing men and excluding women, that would, be, that would not be correct, right? Even today, we have a, 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 a gender-inclusive way of writing that you see in many books where an author, instead of doing the awkward he slash she and then trying to mix up all the rest of them to fit, will in one chapter pick he and in another chapter pick she. But they're not intending to exclude the other gender. To argue that the fact of male-dominated language means only men is an argument from silence and not a very good argument. So that leads us to the second argument, uh, the second reason for uh, making a valid biblical cultural decision. Is there evidence elsewhere in the Bible that shows these commands and statements were not intended to be exclusive of women? And the answer is a resounding yes. I mean, the same male-dominated language that's used for elders is also used for deacons, and yet we see deacons, women deacons mentioned several times in the Bible. We see Phoebe in Romans 16.1 for one. We see Paul saying, I don't permit a woman to teach men, yet Paul applauds Priscilla, a woman who is a teacher. And we know that Priscilla not just didn't just teach women, she taught men, Apollos. We have a specific explicit example of her teaching a man. We see Deborah in the Old Testament, who is a judge, who in that day the judge was the political and spiritual leader of the nation. We see in Joel and Acts prophecies about the Holy Spirit coming and pouring out on both men and women equally gifts of the Holy Spirit and prophecy and public leadership. And we see many examples in the New Testament of women being listed as prophets. And interestingly enough, in Romans 16, we see this woman, Junia, referred to and referred to as a well-respected apostle. See, in the complementarian worldview and argument of theology, a woman could never be an apostle because she would be an elder and an overseer and both those things are a male-dominated role that only men can have. But we, we see that in Romans 16. And we also see the reason it's interesting is because around 900 A.D., all, all the Latin translations that came out switched Junia's name from the female to the male. And about that same time, many of the Greek manuscripts that were copied changed her name from Junia to Junius, from the female to the male version. And many of those translations lasted even in some circles up till today in our English translation Bibles. And yet we look at that and we also see, uh, surrounded with that, we other see other translators trying to say that that translation shouldn't be that she was a well-respected apostle, but that she was respected by the apostles and were translated in a way that would uh, avoid designating Junia as an apostle. But the problem with that is we have an early church father, Chrysostom, who himself was a complementarian, who in his writings talks about the fact that Junia was a recognized female apostle. And you can't have that and have a complementarian consistency in your theology. Some final summary comments on the issue, and then we'll get to an application point. Two things clinched my change primarily. There was lots of things, but two primary things clinched my change from being complementarian to egalitarian. 
First, I really struggle with the fact that either Paul is a hypocrite or he's making a cultural argument. If Paul is not making a cultural argument, then he's a hypocrite because it seems very, very clear that he, he wrote down these commands and yet there's abundant evidence that he appointed women elders and women overseers and women apostles and recognized them and affirmed them. Even if he didn't appoint them, he affirmed them. So if it's not a cultural argument that he's making, then Paul's a hypocrite. And I, I have a hard time seeing that given what we know of Paul's personality and it doesn't fit with an inspiration of Scripture view of life. Or he's not being a hypocrite and the elder and deacon verses were not meant in any way to be male only. It was just the correct grammatical writing of the day and not meant to be exclusive of women. And what really initiated my questioning of the, being a complementarian in the very first place was as a complementarian, I found myself having tons of inconsistency problems in my biblical argument as to what women can and cannot do. So much so that the confusion that I saw in the complementarian camp made me start to think about the fact that if there's this much confusion about what they can and can't do, then this interpretation of the Bible surely can't be right. For example, John Piper, guy I respect. In fact, there's some of my favorite preachers today are still complementarians. I listened to him. I was listening to one of them yesterday on my run, and I love him. I listened to him, and you guys should too. Let me back up. I forgot to say one thing earlier. One of the things that we often um, project wrongly in this is we often project that complementarians are really intending to be oppressive and control women. That is not at all the case for the vast majority of complementarians. For the vast majority of complementarians, it is a genuine, I really believe this is what the Bible says, and for someone to live outside of that doesn't bring the greatest happiness, and their desire is for us to live in the greatest happiness, the greatest true freedom for how we were, we were designed. But yet, getting back now, to, sorry, to this, John Piper, I think, actually probably has the most biblically defensible position as a, com- as a complementarian. John Piper will say that a woman should never lead a man, whether it's in church or in business, either one. And frankly, if you're going to hold a biblical complementarian position, that is the easiest, defensible, most, in- that, that's got the greatest integrity without difficult questions in that position. Um, but then that also ends up leading to problems with 1 Timothy 2 because if uh, the women can't lead men anywhere, then they can't braid their hair, they can't wear jewelry, they, can't wear long, they must wear long, modest dresses with no skin showing because to argue that they can uh, not lead men but that these other things are tradition is like taking one sentence and saying this phrase in this sentence is cultural, and this phrase in this very same sentence is absolute, and it just doesn't make grammatical sense to split a sentence up like that, to be that picky in that process. So we find um, complementarians that will say, well, women can teach only children. Or we'll find other complementarians, very well-known complementarians, who will say women can be missionaries and reach and teach both men and women. We'll find others who will say the women can be deacons and teach in certain settings, even with men, but they can't preach on a Sunday morning. 
And then we'll find other complementarians who say, well, they can preach on a Sunday morning, but they can't be elders. And then we'll still find other complementarians who say, well, women can be on the board of a church as long as they're not designated as spiritual elders. And there really becomes no clear framework that is biblically consistent for how a complementarian sets the boundaries for what men and women can do. It's very, very subjective. And it raises lots of questions. Why can women be deacons but not elders when the wording is the same? The masculine wording is the same for both of them in the text. Or what age should women be able to stop teaching boys because they're now men? Or can women have a ponytail or a bun or is that still considered to be a braid? I mean, you know, those are all questions, legitimate questions I have heard asked over the course of my life. And those are the questions that come out of the debate. And many complementarians actually acknowledge these weaknesses in their position. You see, the reason I believe the egalitarian position is better is because I believe it is stronger and less subjective and confusing as a biblical foundation. It easily harmonizes the differences between the words that we see in the text and the behavior we see in the text of the Bible. It fits extremely well with how Jesus, as we studied him in the Real Jesus series, how Jesus consistently, radically, almost in your face at times, broke cultural norms, elevating women in that culture of that day. And it syncs with the creation account and the pictured words of completed redemption without having to try to minimize those texts, saying they only apply to salvation. We don't have to put qualifications on those texts. We can read them as they are. And actually, I think what we see then when we understand the Bible this way is we see in the practice and the teaching of the early church this really powerful, beautiful relationship above differences that allowed them to have both a respect for the culture they were working within to sometimes forego their rights and live within the boundaries of that culture for the gospel's sake, avoiding unnecessary resistance, and at the same time empowering women to rise above the unbiblical cultural restrictions of their day to become role models for what God was wanting to redeem us to in the end, and there's this dance of being led by the Spirit and doing the right thing at the right time that God leads us in. So besides the fact that we believe women at Quest are fully capable of serving in any role, and the decision to be in that role for a woman is the exact same as a man, are you gifted and are you called by God to be in that role? What can each of us really practically take away from this? Regardless of, I don't expect all of us to agree, regardless of whether you're a complementarian or egalitarian, here's what I think God wants to change in our hearts today and deposit in our hearts today. I find in this discussion this strongly heart-orienting, beautiful demand that the gospel makes on each of us, regardless of our position And that is that we should be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we would be at times willing to forgo certain rights that we have by our Creator. That we would sometimes be willing to forgo those rights if by doing so it will lead more people to faith in Jesus. 
So, you know, we easily illustrate this in terms of missionaries. I have a friend, Pamela, who's spent most of the last 10 years in the various Muslim countries that we've had uh, war on terror with. And the rest of the time, she's in the U.S. working with Muslim communities. And so she wears a burqa, and she operates under the cultural norms of that culture because to not do so means she wouldn't be heard by anybody in that setting. She prioritizes the gospel. But that's a little too easy for us. That's a little too distant for us. Let's, let's bring that a little bit closer to home. God may ask you not to exercise a right that you've been deprived of, maybe in your workplace, if by not exercising that right you're able to stay in relationship with people and be that winsome person who pursues relationship above differences, who demonstrates forgiveness and kindness and draws people into the power of the gospel, which is relationship even when we don't deserve it. Or sometimes God may cause you to not exercise that right to avoid alienating people who are considering faith and to just simply not be contentious. After all, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, that's the main reason why he says we're not to exercise some of these rights is so that we aren't unnecessarily contentious in the, church, in, the, in the culture. Or God may call you to be the Priscilla or the Junia who expresses the full freedom of your uh, of the God-created freedom that you have to, uh, so that others can see God's blessing and they can see the freedom and they can see the empowerment that He wants to bring to all of our lives. And the only way you will know the difference between which avenue you're supposed to take each time is whether the Holy Spirit leads you and whether you're in relationship with God and you know whether He wants you to forego or assert the created right that He has. But for us... That's really Paul's lesson to us that he prefaces even in the beginning of this cultural argument in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says of himself, he says, I want to be all things to all people so that I might win some for Christ. And that's what Jesus did for us as well in coming to be relationship above differences with us, giving up his rights to pursue us because relationship the gospel, forgiveness is the power that changes hearts in life. So, you probably submitted a bunch of questions. Jeremy, you want to join me? I was going to even be shorter winded in this service and I was longer winded. So, we'll take as many questions as we can. We still got a little bit of time. So, Dusty, you got a question? I have many questions, Ross. That is good. Uh, no, thank you for uh, submitting all these. These are really great. Uh, just to let you know a couple of things. Um, if you sent questions during Ross's message uh, that uh, I feel were answered later on after you sent it, I've, I've kind of omitted those things. Um, also, uh, a reminder that all these are anonymous, unless, of course, for whatever reason you put your name. Uh, and uh, questions from both services will be available at the end of the message podcast each and every week. So if you're curious about what the last service asked in this, uh, you could check that out as well. And so I've also combined some repeats, so keep that in mind. Uh, so let's go ahead and move on to our first question. It says, are you saying these verses can be interpreted as having been culturally uh, and in another verse traditionally affected? So they cannot be interpreted for us today the same as for the time they were written. Yes and no. Here's the, di here's the difference. We can't necessarily interpret them for our culture today. 
because our culture today does not have a complementarian culture that if we disturbed it, it would create great resistance to the gospel. So the lesson we can take away today is whether it's this issue or another issue, maybe there's issues out there that we have to forego addressing because they'll create too much resistance. So maybe not directly, but there's still a lesson in it for us. There's a lesson of our heart. And are we going to always be people that demand our rights, or are we going to be people that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit and willing to forego our rights sometimes for the sake of the gospel? And I would say, too, um, when we understand the cultural uh, context that's going on, then we more fully understand the Scripture and can then apply it to our lives better. And so it's critical for us to to know what was going on in and around uh, the Scriptures. Because yeah. it's not just the words, it's the context in which it was said that helps us understand how to apply it today. Dusty. All right. I like this one because it gave you a true or false option. You ready? Uh, true or false, egalitarian uh, views creates as many exegetical or interpretation issues as complementarian creates application problems. I think that's a fair representation on the whole. Um, yes. Uh, it's easier in one sense to read the words of those difficult texts we did and just take them at face value. It's a little bit harder exegesis to get behind the cultural context and to look at the words and say, well, tradition means this or, or that kind of thing. But in the end, um, I would say that the problems with complementarian view and application to daily living far outweigh the difficulty of trying to say that Paul in using this word tradition or Paul in using this awkward break and then re-explaining in a different way what he means. I think to make those logical jumps is a lot easier than to make the jumps that complementarians have to make. And that's the reason I switched positions. Uh, has Quest or formerly New Albany Christian always held an egalitarian view? Um, yes, basically. Um, there's always been a mix, and there's always been representation in, in uh, the board and leadership levels that would be mixed. Uh, it has not been as explicitly stated, but uh, even when I interviewed here before I came here as a senior pastor, I was explicitly told that Quest was an egalitarian uh, theology. So um, there's always been a room for debate, and that's one of the reasons we want there to continue to be room for this to be a relationship above different sustain. So. If complementarians believe women can't teach or lead men spiritually, what do they do with passages that are about or come from women? So put some examples up there, Judges 5, Luke 1, 46 through 55, etc. That is a great question. Um, I say that because I wrote it. Uh, <laughs> See, true anonymity right there. Yeah, right. right. Uh, you can you can check. I, I'm uh, can I throw that one to you because I don't feel fair answering it. But I think it's a great um, something so wonderful to ponder. Um, By the way, uh, Judge, that's part of the reason where the confusion of what women can and can't do comes from because the the complementarians try to deal honestly with some of these passages and go well. The strict text says they shouldn't be able to do this, so then you have to explain why they're doing it. 
And that's where you start getting uh, some of the arguments about how women can be missionaries and lead men, but they can't be in our church here. And you get some of those debates as to how to do that kind of stuff. Really, a lot of that debate comes from, from this tension. Again, but I think it's a whole lot easier to explain it in an egalitarian worldview. Yeah, I was. let me address those real quickly. Judges 5, and you, you heard Ross talk about Deborah. Uh, she was a judge of Israel. Um, judges 5 is actually a song that she sang that became scripture. Uh, that's part of uh, the Torah. And then Luke 1, 46 through 45 is actually the Magnificat. It's Mary's song when um, she sings about once she's understood I'm going that she's going to birth uh, the Christ, the Messiah. And uh, both uh, central texts uh, to our canon of Scripture. Um, so the, a lot of the question becomes then, uh, if, if women cannot teach men, then how then can their words uh, be used for Scripture um, and, uh, and essentially teach men, uh, which is a wonderful conundrum. Um, so... Hopefully we're beyond all of Jeremy's personally submitted. I'm just kidding. That was great. Uh, is the main argument surrounding 1 Corinthians 11 the idea of contextual submission? You want that? Uh, the, this, is, this is interesting, and I, I would kind of expand it um, beyond 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, I, I think I may come at it a little differently. I, I think the answer is yes, and particularly when it comes to spiritual giftedness. Uh, for instance, let me, let me get that first Corinthians text. Why don't you start and I'll finish. How about that? Does that make sense, Ross? Yeah, well, I wouldn't use the word submission, but I would definitely use the, uh, contextualizing the gospel for the sake of mission. And so I guess the submission word could be used that we're submitting to a certain extent to the context, to, to the context within which we're living, to live as harmoniously with that as possible and as winsomely as possible as representatives of the gospel here. I think what's important to note here is that um, as Paul's addressing the Corinthian church, uh, he's he's speaking to them saying, and this I love this text. I think it's it's beautiful, um, particularly First Corinthians eleven uh, five and following. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered uh, dishonors her head, uh, as it's just as though her head were shaved. But then we go and we read First Corinthians fourteen, which says that a woman a woman is not allowed to speak in church. Like when when she's confused about what's being taught then uh, she's not allowed to, to ask her husband what, what's going on here. And, and really the cultural uh, understanding around this is that um, in the time when Paul was writing this, women weren't as educated as men. And so there would be this tension. Where, and you have to also understand that the churches, the synagogues where they're learning in, women would sit on one side and men would sit on the other. And so for a woman to ask her husband a question would be like, hey, Hey, Ross, tell me what that meant. You know, and so it was creating this disruption in, in the church and, and almost creating disorder. And, and so what Paul is saying there is um, don't speak in church because you're creating disorder. This kind of goes into what Ross was saying about it's more important to get to the gospel and to talk about truth than it is to, um, for women to speak. But what I love about it, that's, that's 1 Corinthians 14, but clearly Paul understands that women speak in church because here in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered in church 
is dishonoring. So, so do you understand what I'm, what I'm establishing here? That, that Paul is almost making two different statements to the same church. He's not saying women shouldn't speak. He's saying don't be disorderly. Don't cause chaos within uh, the service. Yeah, which the whole, again, the cultural context of the day, the whole aspect of lack of education of women would explain why he wouldn't want women teaching. Because most of them were completely illiterate and uneducated. But it would also explain why people like Lydia and many of the others who were upper-class educated women were affirmed as leaders and teachers in the church. So it really becomes an issue of order and knowledge, not an issue of men and women. Right. All right, I have a couple quick ones for you. At Quest, are women permitted to serve in all levels of leadership? Yep. See? Look how quick that was. That was good. This one may not be as quick. Since the term elder or elder board has been used in uh, dated culture, is it wise for Quest uh, to continue using these terms? Someone else um, also asked that and was saying if somebody has kind of negative feelings about, you know, elders in a complementarian church, yeah. is it wise that we still use that? Yeah, I don't know. That's that's one of those questions I've debated for years. So, you know, during the early 2000s when I was training pastors, I had deliberately uh, changed terms because terms carry baggage with it. So I'd talk about the same thing with a different term because the only way you could get at the nuance of what you wanted to communicate uh, without the baggage was to use a new term. But then there's also the argument that we should use the biblical terms and we should just define them. Yeah. And learn to use the terms yeah. the Bible uses. So I, I don't know. I think we've chosen to use the term the Bible uses and try to redefine it mm-hmm. from all the cultural baggage of the last hundred years. All right, two hundred years. You want one more? Is that all? Uh, we we have more, but we're um, starting well, to run actually, out of time. Give, give us one more, and then worship team come. All right. Um, let me uh, pull this one up because it's come up again. Uh, I feel that women's rights uh, emasculates men or makes them weak. Uh, doesn't the egalitarian approach of the Bible contribute to that? That's, uh, I know you, I think you got a good answer to that too. That's, that's one of those questions, that's one of those questions that says, do we blame culture or do we blame, do we blame the Bible? The reality is, for the last couple hundred years, we've had women's rights movements and uh, race rights movements going on. And so when uh, the natural thing within a culture, when it is oppressive to something that it should not be oppressive, and people start to break out of that, is for the people who make it to the top first to typically be the strongest, most resilient, and oftentimes the most abrasive people. Right? Who get hard, who, who get really hard, and they just fought, and they're the only ones who made it to those positions because they were strong enough to ignore everybody else and just stick it in everybody else's faces, right? And there, I think there legitimately has been among the women's rights uh, a message that has reacted to male domination that has at times squelched. The beautiful, created way God intends men to be strong. And our message is, at Quest, we want men to be all that God intended them to be and to be strong. And we want women to be all that God intended them to be and to be strong. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's, a, it's a stretch to blame a change in theology on what has happened in our culture to men. 
I think it's a more appropriate thing to explain uh, what has happened by over overreaction pendulum swing in our culture. I, I just want to give you, right before we start worship, uh, two of my favorite questions that came in that are just going to be for your viewing pleasure. Uh, what are your thoughts on someone beating your pastor at fantasy football and their potential role in the church? Uh, <laughs> that doesn't take our, yeah. I'm, I'm a 10th out of 10 in the fantasy football league I'm in here at Quest. So and uh, does having an egalitarian view mean I have to start doing laundry? <laughs> if you want to wear all pink clothes, yes. Let me, let I'm me. Say yes so I can go home with my wife. I, I want to, I want to just, the question before, uh, those two that came in, I just want to add one thing to it. Well, two things. Um, you know, I, I think God clearly, uh, designed us, uh, in a certain way for a specific purpose. And then, uh, due to the fall of man, we've kind of fallen out of that and we've established our own paradigms and orders of operation that have, uh, really operated um, in spite of God. And so we have a lot of institutions in place or have had a lot of institutions in place that, that really aren't favorable. Like you look at polygamy, you look at slavery, you look at racism, um, and you look at uh, patriarchal societies. And, uh, and so the, this is referring to that question about um, women's rights. I think that, and, and Ross really started to address this, um, as women rights, women's rights came out, I think a, a lot of um, the things that, that came out of that, and someone else told me this um, before this service, that they, they really came out of almost an envious position uh, that created a little bit of hostility, maybe a lot of hostility um, from women toward men. And so that's where there, a lot of the tension came from. But the ultimate truth is that God designed it a specific way um, for men and women to be uh, created equal, but beautifully, what's, I, I always forget it, but beautifully different created equal but beautifully different and that's his uh, goal for us and we will experience that in redemption um, and and so he uses um, people uh, who are trying to honor what his scripture says to assert women back into their position uh, the way that he defined it and that's really what uh, the egalitarian uh, position is trying to do um, and I don't mean to say that to pit necessarily egalitarian versus complementarian because I believe what Ross said earlier that neither position is really trying to oppress uh, any other. Um, but so we've gone really long partially because I was long-winded, sorry. Uh, but I hope you've enjoyed it. And um, uh, what I want us to take away most today is just a heart that says, God, we're going to be everything you want us to be. I'm not going to, I'm going to believe all the good you have for me to be but we're also going to be people who are willing to lay down our rights when needed for the sake of the gospel. Got any questions yet? Yes, we do. Um, let me throw the first one up for you. Uh, this is uh, in early, so I was able to pull up the passage they were talking about. This is referring to uh, Titus chapter 1, um, mainly verses 5 through 7. In discussing how to behave in the church, God inspires Paul to say that elders uh, must be husbands. How could a woman be a husband? Uh, and then I pulled up verse six, uh, where that is yeah. translated. And again, that goes back to that goes back to the um, argument from silence. Uh, to they had to pick one. The Greek language didn't allow a he/she construct. You don't see that anywhere in the Greek language. Uh, you had to pick. Uh, um, as many of you know from other languages, you have to decide whether something is going to be expressed in the masculine or feminine. It's not necessarily meant to exclude 
the other. All right. The next one we have, if Paul is making a cultural argument, why does he appeal so strongly to the Genesis account to make his case? Whatever truth is revealed in Genesis doesn't uh, change based on culture. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's also, I think we would go back to the qualification that he has in 1 Corinthians 11, where he actually backs away from allowing that argument to go too far and says, no, before God in Christ, male and female are the same. And he specifically backs away from that article by saying, yeah, well, uh, man, uh, woman came from man, but now man comes from woman, and it's all the same um, in that context. I, I would also add um, uh, that there is an argument to be made that in the Genesis text, particularly Genesis 3, when they're talking about the fall, um, that uh, Genesis, actually Genesis 2, we can begin there. Uh, God speaks to Adam first in saying, this is, this is what you're not to do. Uh, this is the only thing that you're not to do in Eden. And, uh, and then the argument can be made that particularly in the Timothy passage, 1 Timothy 2, uh, where he's saying, you know, woman was deceived first and, you know, therefore, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, that that actually it was man's responsibility. Ultimately, the onus is on man. It's man's responsibility was his responsibility in creation uh, to teach woman what she should do. Um, and she, he did not teach her well enough. Therefore, uh, she was the one that was first deceived. And so then you go back to this Timothy passage, and it's almost making the same suggestion. Um, you must teach the women, and he's referring to being an authority over um, men in this setting of uh, the temple of Artemis and the the female priestesses who were also prostitutes and and saying if the women um, are not taught by men which I, and he's kind of saying I don't believe men can teach women well enough <laughs> what I'm saying is the onus is on the men um, men cannot teach women well enough then there may revert to their practices um, that happen in the same Artemis temple and so uh, I think what Paul is really saying is, men, you're not strong enough to teach the women, so just don't even let them step into those roles like they were doing um, in the Artemis worship culture of the day. And there's an argument in that passage as well that the women in that culture were uneducated, so to have them be the teachers was not a creation thing. It was a reality of their culture. It was not healthy to have people who were not educated do the teaching. All right. This one has uh, two slides with it. Uh, I'm not sure. Test number two, referring to your test of uh, whether something is uh, a cultural, the two examples you get. Uh, I'm not sure. Test number two is fair. The Lord may use anyone and empower them uh, with miracles regardless of their status. I'm thinking of the people Jesus turned away, the people who did miracles in his name. Is it then fair to use evidence of blessing as a ruler? I think that comes down to a very fundamental issue of how we're going to interpret how we're going to interpret the scripture, and this is this is a big issue. There is a camp of theology that relies on the prescriptive words of scripture, meaning the commands, the principles, the statements, right? And I would suggest that part of the reason that's been the case, uh, a very strong camp in American culture, is because it fits with our worldview that has recently gone out of modernism, which was all about rationalism. It was all about principles. It wasn't about story at all. 
But if you actually look at the New Testament and the Bible and the culture in which it was written, the story in that culture was as important as the words and the statements made. And I would also further assert that if we're going to be relational in our theology rather than dogmatic in it, if we're going to be relational, then the actions of the people we learn as much from as the words of the people. And the way we learn what the words mean is through the actions of the people that we see where the Bible is saying there is a blessing of God on their lives. Okay? So I, I, I think you can easily make that argument. In fact, I think it is... Um, not, I don't agree with the theology that doesn't make the argument on behavior as well as text. Because look at it in your own life. You can tell your kid, don't do this, and then they, 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 they don't do it, but you didn't exactly mean they may be taken to, to an extreme, right? You don't mean it that way. How many times do we have to go back and say, well, I said this, but I didn't mean that that meant this, right? And so we learn what truth is through action, as much as we learn what truth is through stated statement and principle. Very good. Uh, the How next time. Right now, we are, this should probably be our last okay. one. Um, we did have uh, several, and a, a lot of them had uh, similar ties. Um, so I'm sure a lot of these will pop up in the next service. And I did want to let you know that both sets of Q&A uh, are going to be uh, available on our podcast. So if uh, your question didn't get answered this service, you don't have time to stick around for second service. Um, when we get to Q&A in the next service, it will be recorded and uh, put on the podcast. So uh, with that being said, here is the last question. I feel that uh, women's rights uh, emasculates men or makes them weak. Uh, doesn't the egalitarian approach of the Bible contribute to that? Um, think about it if you want to answer this too, but I, I really yeah. want to answer that one. Sorry, I'm not letting him talk enough. It's okay. Here's one of the struggles. I think with women's rights in general in our culture and with ethnic rights in our culture, our culture has struggled for well over 150 years to come out of oppressive racism as well as women's rights. If our culture has that natural bent, then who do we think are going to be the first blacks or Hispanics or women to make it to the top? They're usually going to be the ones who have foreheads like Flint and attitudes and strength and ego strength like nobody else, right? Because the ones who are a little more amiable are not going to make it to the top of the culture in a culture that is making it hard for them. And I think because of that, there's been some areas of women's rights that have tended to emasculate strong men. But I also see the more that women are in leadership the less that is happening and the more that that balance is being returned. I think we've seen in our culture a switch from a complementarian to over here and the men have lost some and now I think the culture is coming back and I think that's really more of a cultural uh, dynamic than it is a spiritual biblical reality. I don't think egalitarianism undermines men at all because both views 
and egalitarian included, fully values the unique differences that God created us to be. And we need to em- em- encourage them both. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is um, from the beginning of time, the established order that God designed for us was that um, men and women were created equally in the image of God. And so this is precisely the way the Lord designed it. And I I think that what we see throughout Scripture, uh, particularly after the fall and, um, you know, before redemption, is that God has been working within the systems, uh, I'm sorry, the fallen systems of man over time and uh, trying to right the ship, so to speak. So, um, you know, God used polygamists and God used slave owners and God used the patriarchal system to still work in and ultimately wants to change it and move it back to um, the way that he had designed it originally in Genesis 1 and 2. And, uh, and so I think, um, does this emasculate men? No, this is what God really wants. And I want to reiterate um, Ross's last statement that we are designed for each other, uh, equal. Um, we do have, you know, say that again because I don't want to... We do have beautiful differences. Yes, I love that. Beautiful differences. Um, and, and that's the way that uh, God intended it to be ultimately. Let's just ponder these thoughts and, and worship uh, some and just go to God and ask him. If you're struggling, we don't expect everybody to agree on this. What I hope is that you can let go of the fear that uh, if you're a complementarian, I hope you can let go of the fear that an egalitarian position is automatically non-scriptural. And that we can learn to love one another in our differences and worship God together because it's the unity as 1 Corinthians 11 develops. And our freedom from contentiousness and our ability to be in a relationship above differences, which is the power of the gospel. So let's worship God around that. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.